Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. This week's episode features Matt Connetti of the American Enterprise Institute's second appearance on the podcast. Continetti is a notable writer and scholar on the history of American conservative and the Republican Party. He's also the founder and former editor-in-chief of the Washington Review. Continetti and Roger discuss what a Workers' Party GOP might look like from President Biden's overreach in the first year of his administration. If you enjoy the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Matt Connetti, welcome back to Reaganism. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to see you. Um, lots to discuss. You are... I believe uh, the most listened to podcast of all our guests, certainly one of the most uh, top two for sure. So uh, you clearly have a, a big following in the Reagan community and the Ricochet community. So uh, we know uh, we'll get a lot of listeners for this one. Um, since we last had you on the show, Matt, you've moved. Uh, at least uh, you're still with the Washington Free Beacon, but that is not your full-time gig. At least I don't think so. You're also at the American Enterprise Institute. Tell everybody about what you're up to these days. Sure. Uh, well, thanks for having me, Roger. And um, thanks for listening. Uh, in October of 2019, uh, I left the Washington Free Beacon, which I had founded uh, in 2012 uh, as a conservative news site uh, for the American Enterprise Institute. And um, the main reason I went to AI was to uh, focus more intensely on uh, my history of uh, the conservative uh, movement and the Republican Party. And uh, so I'm happy to announce that uh, my, my book, uh, The Right, uh, <laughs> easy title to remember, uh, is scheduled to be published uh, next spring, spring of 2022 by uh, Basic Books. So that's what I've been spending the last 18 months uh, really, really working on. It's a history of um, American conservatism, basically, uh, from 1920 until 2020. And 1920 to 2020. So uh, you get the Trump years in this book. Yes, um, yes. So totally unfair question. Uh, and congratulations on getting this done and, and that you have the date set for when it will be kind of out for the public to enjoy. Um, if you look at that 100 year period, um, have we seen all this before or are we in new territory kind of since 2016? Well, that's a good question. I mean, one of, one of the themes of my book is that actually um, uh, a lot of the debates on the right that we have now uh, are long running and they've happened before. Um, and that there's always been a tension between um, kind of an institutionalism on the right and a populist spirit um, that uh, views the institutions as corrupted. Um, uh, so in many ways, on a policy level, um, the Republican Party of Donald Trump um, resembles uh, the Republican Party of uh, 
Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge 100 years ago, if you think about it, um, kind of a uh, non-interventionist foreign policy, a um, protectionist economic trade policy, a um, immigration restrictionist uh, party, um, and a focus on economic, um, not just economic growth, but on jobs. So there are some, there are some superficial similarities. Now, uh, Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge are not Donald Trump <laughs> in any way. Um, and they weren't, po they weren't necessarily populist because a hundred years ago, you know, uh, the Republican party and um, the kind of constitutionalism of Coolidge and Harding was just the status quo. Uh, it was the way things had been. Um, and it, what the real change, I think, uh, at least in my history comes with the New Deal and, um, and kind of the rise of uh, centralized bureaucratic government in the United States. And that kind, of, that kind of put Republicans and conservatives on the outs for many years. And um, uh, unlike conservatives in other countries where, who defend kind of established institutions, uh, you know, like the monarchy or the official church or the arist aristocracy, um, conservatives in the United States since the New Deal have had this weird, um, occupy this weird position where, you know, they're for the constitution, they're for patriotism, um, but they're extremely critical of the government because they weren't a part of its making, um, this, this new government, this post- They weren't a part government. of its making or they just felt it was a departure from these the, the intent of the Well, founders. both, yeah, they, I mean, they opposed it, you know, but also right. they, they were totally wiped out uh, politically by the, by the depression. Uh, one, one more, one more on this book. This is kind of for everybody in a little bit of a teaser. What to look forward to uh, in, in a year's time or slightly less than a year's time. All right. So you have this hundred year period. We know you love Reagan. You've been on this show before you write about him and the ideas uh, that president Reagan espoused frequently. Who was someone, a president or just a conservative uh, that kind of surprised you or you became a fan of in a way that going into the project, you may not have, been so enthusiastic about or didn't know about? Well, uh, Coolidge, I found that, Harding? <laughs> well, no, I, I liked Coolidge uh, and I liked Harding before uh, before writing the book. I, I found I wrote a lot about uh, Robert Taft um, than mm -hmm. I expected to. Um, I don't really agree with Robert Taft's foreign policy. Um, but it was uh, definitive but, in the 50s, right? I mean, uh, Senator yeah, from Ohio. I mean, he was the leader, uh, you know, he was the Senate uh, majority leader for actually for a very brief period after the 1952 election, he dies in 1953. Um, but you know, he was a civil rights Republican. Um, uh, I admire that he was a, a small government Republican. There's no question about that. I admire that. And he was also kind of a, um, he was such an unusual guy. Uh, he was not the most charismatic person for sure. Um, but you know, he thought seriously about politics. And so our leaders don't have to be the most charismatic. Yeah, no, I know. Well, but the problem for Taft and for the conservatives was that Taft wanted to be president. And, right. you know, he ran several times for the Republican nomination kept and kept losing. Um, uh, so uh, even though I, I disagree uh, in, in large part with his foreign policy, I found myself admiring Taft for, for many reasons while I wrote about him. The other character uh, who, you know, does occupy a lot of space in the book um, is Pat Buchanan, hmm. uh, someone who, you know, uh, had been involved in Republican politics really since 1965. 
and um, came through Nixon and obviously had a big place in the Reagan White House. Yep. And then, of course, started running uh, for the Republican nominations in 92 and 96 and then broke with the party. And, you know, by following Buchanan's trajectory, you can really see a lot uh, of where the party was headed um, in its embrace of populism and nationalism. And so immigration, I mean, he would, that was always kind of absolutely that was this. One of his longtime voice on McLaughlin Group, huh? Was... Yeah, it was the McLaughlin Group comes up a little bit in the book. <laughs> Actually, I, I would recommend for for Reagan fans if you, there's a McLaughlin Group fan channel on YouTube, which I happened to discover uh, while working on my book. Uh, and uh, how how big is that? The following of the McLaughlin uh, you know, fan it's channel. It's a few on thousand people, but the best the best part is they do have some full episodes from the late '80s and. Um, and early '90s, kind of the Reagan Bush years, and that's when the McLaughlin Group was at its height. And it is it is fun to watch even now, 30 years later. So I recommend that for for people who have some time to kill on YouTube, because you will waste the time once you get sucked in. I spent a good afternoon and a half just watching uh, just watching old McLaughlin groups. I mean, don't you want to just host a show and and and, and be like McLaughlin? I mean, he just had such command there in that seat. You know, he was a pioneer, and the problem in many ways is that everyone imitated his model, and mm. and so, um, you know, for what that was the first time that you had a chat show with the combatants really getting at it, uh, and that became the model for all of cable television. And of course, you know, when um, it's kind of bad money chases out good, right? It's Gresham's law because once everybody starts doing it, the quality deteriorates. It's poor imitations. And the thing about McLaughlin Group in its beginning was the guys actually knew what they were talking about. Um, and so that's something that's <laughs> missing from a lot of cable commentary today. The other thing was they had a sense of humor uh, right. and they weren't afraid to laugh at each other or themselves. And um, of course, I, one of my big problems with American politics today is no one has a sense of humor. Nobody's funny. No one's Nobody's funny. funny. No, everything everything is catastrophic, apocalyptic. It's the end of the world if we don't win. Um, I just wish people would would relax uh, and realize that you know this is this country's great. It's been going for a while. It's going to continue to go. Well, I'm, I'm trying to uh, think of a smooth transition between the McLaughlin Group and, and <laughs> some of the things you've written recently about the Workers Party and and uh, the Jim Banks memo out of the GOP Study Committee. But I failed. So we'll just jump into it. All right. So sure. uh, not only are you uh, a historian of, of ideas, political ideas and, and the conservative movement, but you also write frequently about what's happening today in, in our national politics and particularly amongst uh, conservatives. Uh, tell us what happened in the end of March and, and why you focused on this memo from the chair of the Republican Study Committee, Jim Banks, congressman from Indiana. Um, and why that caught your attention? What, what was happening uh, with that memo that you thought uh, was worthy of, of your pen? Yeah, well, uh, you know, you have to go back to the 2020 election results, uh, which took the country by surprise. Um, uh, the success of the Republicans in winning House seats, um, the closeness of the election, uh, not only at the presidential level, but um, in the Senate, where, you know, the the Republicans really had the chance to maintain control of the Senate um, had not the former president decided to uh, suppress turnout in for his own senators in the Georgia runoffs in January. Um, and this led uh, a lot of people to wonder, okay, so why did the Republican Party do as well as it did? And uh, very quickly, 
um, Republican leaders came to the conclusion that um, the Republican Party is changing. And the phrase that you heard a lot was, uh, you know, multi-ethnic workers party. That was came from uh, Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley right after the election. And so in the spring, uh, Congressman Jim Banks, who's a rising uh, conservative in the House, he's the head of the Republican Study Committee. Uh, he released a memo uh, addressed to Republican leader Kevin McCarthy uh, talking about what a working class GOP would look like. And I was fascinated by this memo and I, I am a friend of Congressman Banks um, because the, the items on the working class agenda uh, had nothing to do with economics. <laughs> So. Right. I mean, this is what you parse. This is actually not what Senator Hawley or Senator Rubio right. generally focus on. So right. almost you created almost two camps, two approaches of how to talk about this. Well, what it showed to me is that in truth, uh, working class GOP is a very muddled concept um, that uh, if you look at just straight income, uh, Republicans continue to draw uh, from the upper income brackets. Um, it's when you reach the very high incomes, the 1%, the top of the 1%, where uh, the voters are actually liberals. Uh, but in the middle class, upper middle class, and affluent, they're still mainly Republican. Okay, so working class, what does it mean? Well, uh, it is true. And there's been some research uh, uh, by Dante Chinney and Wall Street Journal NBC on this, that among people who say they're blue collar, uh, they've been moving to the Republican Party uh, pretty uh, pretty rapidly over the last uh, 20 years. But blue, that, blue collar doesn't necessarily correspond to people making no, less than 100. I mean, you have this thing, at, you know, according to 2020 exit poll, President Biden won voters making less than $100,000, while then President Trump won voters who earned more than $100,000 right. $100, by 12 points. No, and in fact, the blue collar contractors say, if you own your own business, uh, you can do pretty well for yourself. Uh, but you still think of yourself as working with your hands. Right. And then there's a larger universe of just if you define class or, or read class through the lens of education, which we tend to do in the United States. And so then you look at kind of the non-college white voters, which are the large population of voters in our country. And these voters, again, since the Cold War, end of the Cold War, have been moving into the Republican Party. And conversely, uh, white voters with college degrees or college educated voters in general, moving out of the Republican Party and going to the Democratic Party. So, uh, so that's the broad uh, trend. Um, some Republicans like Holly and Rubio, they say, well, since we're a working class party or since we're a blue collar party, we need to embrace basically statist economics. The government needs to be more activist. Uh, we need to engage in industrial policy. Uh, we need to, um, give child benefits, uh, 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 we need to be more redistributive. The Jim Bankses of the world though, they don't embrace any of that, which I found pretty interesting. For them, being a working class party means being, uh, you know, anti-political correctness. Right, um, social means, issues, fighting the identity of politics, you know. We, yes, uh, going wokeism. after big tech, right? Um, kind of, you know, you see it in the news, as we're speaking here in mid-June of 2021, going after the elites, it's being anti-elitist, right? Fire Fauci, right? This is, that's what being a working class party means for Jim Banks. And so- um, Freedom, the, not Fauciism. 
Is right. That, is, that's is what the they big, scream in Florida. That's the slogan of uh, Governor DeSantis, right? So I think that's actually more where the Republican Party is headed now, rather than um, the kind of the uh, economic centralization. Uh, common good capitalism you hear from the Hollies and Rubios, which are very, which, it is very popular among a certain set online, you know. Yeah, I, so let's talk about that, this kind of common good capitalism versus the market fundamentalism. Um, so you think banks didn't want to take that on, the Republican Study Committee doesn't want to take on those policies, nor, nor do they reject them, they just don't think that's the language we should use in order to take back the House majority. That, that's what I got from your, your analysis. Right. I think there are two things. One is I think most conservatives and Republicans just don't agree uh, with this economic analysis. Um, they think that the way to uh, improve incomes and increase social mobility is through uh, you know, uh, releasing the entrepreneurial energies of individuals. Um, creating a stable business environment, cutting regulations, more traditional Republican economic policy. And two, they probably don't see it as a way of, um, of appealing to a large group of voters. They see, they see the lesson of the last four or five years as being um, um, the importance of social issues and cultural issues, as right. you say. Those are, the one, those are the issues that motivate people more than so, so, so play the argument of a, of a Senator Hawley and a Senator Rubio to a lesser extent. You see Senator Cotton doing this and Senator Sass. Quite interesting. It, it, it seems to be coming from the think tank that is the U.S. Senate as opposed to, you know, governors who are actually running states. But doesn't it go like something, hey, if I want to sit in Washington and help the American worker and I want to be you know, blue collar helping the American worker. We ought to have some policy ideas behind it. And this market fundamentalism at the end of the day is, is, is letting us down because it only favors elites and these, these corporates that, that are undermining, um, you know, the American worker. So let's be, let's be less focused on, you know, the market and keeping that pure and more focused on the worker and making sure that worker is being taken care of. And if it means the government involving itself in the economy to get good outcomes to the worker, so be it. Right. Um, that is the argument they make. I mean, the obvious question is, well, does government involvement help the worker, you know, and what, what is actually, what is actually your program? Um, now, you know, there are a variety of policies that are being put out there, um, some of them are more interesting than others. I mean, they range from like taxing university endowments to uh, child tax credits, for example. Uh, one of which, the the Romney uh, tax credit, uh, would not um, require work, um, and so that would go against the grain of um, basically Republican social policy for the last you know uh, sixty years. Um, there's the industrial policies. Should the um, you know should we uh, subsidize our supply chains uh, so that they're more resilient? Then you get into antitrust. Should we you know should we mm -hmm. break up big tech? I mean, there's a variety of policies. All of them need to be kind of judged on their own merits. Um, but but you're not convinced it actually result in a that's what's going to drive a winning majority. No, I mean, I don't think so, because I don't think most Republicans care all that much about any of this. <laughs> I think most Republicans care about culture. That's what they care about. And to the extent that they have economic views, it probably they're 
more traditional economic views like cut my taxes, spend less money, and lower regulations. And and that I mean that's traditionally so, so we've had Oren Cass on on the show before, which is kind of one of the I don't know intellectual advocates yeah. of of common good capitalism. Um, and I I was trying to kind of discern from Oren, you know, are you in favor of big government, you know, or, or, or at least government the size it is because you're looking for government to get involved. He was a little, um, I'd say, unwilling to acknowledge that, to say somehow, you know, common good capitalism um, results in larger government it just means government's going to be directed to do things different than it's doing right now. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of like, wake up, the government's big and they're involved in the economy. Um, then I remember we had a conversation with Rich Lowry. You know, he Rich says, you know, American people, including conservatives, want big government now. The days of, of smaller government um, are kind of where conservatives want government out of the way and government's the problem is, is of a bygone era. Where, where do you come down on this? And, and where do you think conservatives are on that? Well, I think conservatives uh, are at a place where they're, where they're confused. Uh, to be to be frank, I don't think they're. I think Rich is partly right. They're saying that they're, they're not government. It's not something they really think about. Um, uh, but they're demanding more, right? We want healthcare, right? Well, I, I mean, I don't know if I'd go that far. I think Republicans are still opposed to Obamacare. I think they would want to repeal Obamacare. Um, I, I I think if you ask Republicans, I think if you ask most voters, should uh, welfare. Uh, come with a work requirement, they'd support a work requirement. Again, I think most voter, most Republican voters want to lower uh, regulations. Uh, they look at the tax debate we're having in Washington right now. Yeah, it's a good It's example. not as though everyone's, you know, rushing to raise the, the corporate tax rate, right? And even mm-hmm. then, that's the corporate tax rate that they're, that they're reluctant to raise. Forget about the individual tax rates. It's going to be even more difficult to do. And Biden goes, President Biden goes out of his way to say they won't be raised for people over four hundred thousand um, dollars. So I think, in general, people like low taxes. Uh, I, the, 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 what's happening now is the right uh, is much more focused on the culture, right? And you kind of see this now uh, from from. Um, figures on the right, communications figures saying, uh, actually the real dangers to our freedoms come from the universities or they come from uh, big tech or they come from the media. They're not talking about government at all. When traditionally conservatives have said, they've been anti-centralization. They've said the, the, the main threat to individual freedom is the state. The state right. has the monopoly of force, right? Um, and, and so I, I, I think, a conservative should be focused on the state, you know, and they're, they're related these, you know, we don't like these big corporations because in many ways they're enmeshed with government. Right. Um, or they're, or they're, they've gone so big, they're, they're performing kind of polls without their coming. They're, they're doing things to us in a way that in the past we had, we were concerned government can do to us. Right? I guess so. I mean, that's, I, I'm, I'm not even so convinced of that to be frank. I mean, people mm-hmm. always say censorship, censorship, but the real censorship is government censorship. You know, I mean, look at what happened in Nigeria, shutting down Twitter, right? right. That's the real deplatforming to me. Um, but regardless, no one cares what I think. <laughs> More broadly, there people are just saying that culture is the real issue. That's the real fight. 
And so government as a subject uh, uh, is kind of avoided, um, which again makes it funny because there are people like Warren Cass who, you know, I, who I respect very much who want government to do new things, but we're not really even having those debates in, in America today. So, so if we fast forward to primaries in, in 2023 and we get, you know, the cast of, of likely candidates, you know, they'll all, if I'm understanding you correctly, Matt, saying we're the party of the American worker, no one's really going to say anything else. But what they emphasize, the policies in which they, you know, or the way they talk about it, some will, will get into this, you know, common good capitalism and how, how we should be, you know, how government should be involved to take care of the American worker. But you think the winning mix and the one that's going to appeal most to conservatives, if I understand you, is going to be the ones that's talking about the cultural wars that continue. And look at, look at our last president, Donald Trump. It was he, did he embrace common good capitalism? No, <laughs> Donald Trump is, he is a typical Republican on economic issues, cut taxes, lower regulations, Look at my judges. Industrial um, policy, you know, because we, I mean, that there he was, was protectionist. He was protectionist. He raised tariffs. He's yeah. tariff man. But I don't see, I mean, I don't see him necessarily embracing industrial policy. I don't, I don't think he, those words ever crossed his lips. You no. know, te- a test case is the uh, Operation Warp Speed. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, Operation Warp Speed is a classic example of what Ronald Reagan called the creative society, which is that government's role should be to, to stand back, to encourage businesses, to say, what do you need? We're gonna lower regulations. We're gonna lower all the um, uh, barricades to innovation. And we're gonna incentivize you uh, to come up with this vaccine by saying at the start that we're gonna purchase hundreds of millions of doses, okay? That's how I view Operation Warp Speed. For the Rubios and Hollies, Operation Warp Speed is, is actually industrial policy. Right. Now, if that's industrial policy, then fine. I don't disagree with it. <laughs> but I think when most people... But hear- your, your, your point is, in the end of the day, it was the private sector, which needs to be incentivized to get on something and let them go and then get out of their way. That's, classic that's Reagan. Really- it's classic. It's class, that's the creative. If you go back to the Creative Society speech in 1966, that's what he's talking about. Um, so I, sometimes I look at these debates and I wonder, what are we really arguing about? So did, did, did banks get it right? In that respect, I mean, in terms of the pulse of what conservatives truly care about and, and not going full on to, you know, embrace some of these uh, common good, you know, I, I think ideas. I, I think Jim Banks looked at the data and he said, this is how uh, the where the Republican Party is. This is the composition of the Republican Party. And then these are the issues that motivate them the most right now. Now, the question, though, is, is that a way to get your majority back? Well, right. It's kind of a hollow governing agenda, isn't it? There's not much there there in terms of policy. No, there's no policy. Oh, there was no Republican platform in 2020. The Republican <laughs> Party was created in 1854. In every election since, they've issued a platform, except 2020. Instead, they in 2020, they issued a sentence. They said, we will continue to support the America first policies of Donald Trump. 2016. Go see 2016 platform. Go see 2016, yeah. CF 2016 platform. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't, I, that's what's so bizarre about a lot of our debates today. But that, that actually is the debate, is it? Uh, is it not? I mean, we had, um, we'll talk about this in a minute. We 
the Reagan Foundation, of which the Reagan Institute is the DC office of. And uh, Reaganism is a podcast that uh, is produced and, and promoted by the Reagan Foundation, has put on the Time for Choosing series, which asks a few questions of its speakers, like uh, what should the Republican Party stand for? Uh, what can we all agree on? Where are we failing? Where are we succeeding? Um, and we've gotten some great speakers lined up. We'll talk about it in a minute. But uh, one Senator Lindsey Graham uh, went on uh, Fox show and, and said, well, uh, the question for Republicans is not anything other than will you support Donald Trump? And um, why would you not support American first and, you know, make America great again, which in other words is saying the platform for 2024 and the ideas that should animate 2024 are the same ideas and platform of 2016. And that's essentially what he said. And that, that is going to be a big debate, don't you think, going into the, you know, the midterms and, and beyond? Uh, well, there's a debate over um, where you stand on Donald Trump. I think- uh, at but, the but the policies, MAGA and American first, especially. But those are slogans. MAGA and America first are slogans. So then the question is, what are the what is the actual policy? So what again, the paradox of Trump is he was a hugely disruptive force. He was anti-institutionalist, anti-elitist. But at the end of the day, if you look at his program, other than those tariffs, other than his rejection of Paul Ryan's entitlement reforms, uh, he was pretty much uh, a Republican, you know, he was a conservative Republican. He was, that's why he drew from the Freedom Caucus for all of his chiefs of staff. <laughs> um, and again, the final thing being immigration was, was his main departure. And I think that's where immigration is, is kind of the new glue of the Republican coalition. And there's policy there, right? I mean, you, yeah. you, look, you look at the Remain in Mexico policy and um, how Biden junked it. And now we have... Uh, highest number of border crossings in over a decade. So you'll see many Republicans, I think, say that we need to reinstate yeah, it's, something. I mean, couldn't you say it's strong national defense, limited involvement overseas, right? I mean, it, it wasn't fully realized, but that's where President Trump was going in terms of basing and involvement. Um, immigration, which you've articulated, industrial policy in terms of protectionism and, 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 and tariffs. Um, and then, you know, keep, keep taxes uh, low. I mean, that's 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 essentially what he did. That's what he represents. Kind of a yeah. hybrid in a sense, but it's you know, yeah, traditional. Republican I mean, you know, it's funny. Support. Even with the tariffs, I'm not sure how far. You know, you don't see um, the tariffs. Biden has kept the tariffs on China, which which is interesting. But you don't even see many people claiming for uh, clamoring for new tariffs. Well, it was kind of hard <laughs> to ju justify, you know, like, tariffs on our our. You know, in Canada or the UK, or and, right? In the EU, steel and yeah. aluminum. I mean, yeah. So, so my made. point there is, even there, the party doesn't seem to have moved all that much. It was mm -hmm. very peculiar to Trump, and you know, Trump understood uh, the economic leverage America has, especially over its allies. You know, mm -hmm. and that's how we got Remain in Mexico. Was Trump threatened to impose these crushing tariffs on the Mexican economy? <laughs> and uh, AMLO, the Mexican president, said, "Fine, well." We, you can keep the um, asylum seekers uh, on yeah, our we'll, side. We'll, of the they'll stay in Mexico. Exactly. So, um, look, I, you know, I, I think the Republican Party is in a very confused uh, state right now. Um, and uh, weirdly, uh, that doesn't matter because it's also in a pretty good political state. Um, you know, the Senate's tied 50-50. They have a, a 
they're very close to winning the majority in the house. Um, uh, and, you know, and uh, as far as the electoral college goes, you know, they're still competitive. Um, 40, something like 44,000 votes over three states yeah. um, gave, gave Biden the presidency. Had those I, votes- I want to go to Biden in, 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 in a minute and talk about your recent piece in terms of uh, Biden's, I think, your long, hot summer. It's, it's getting hot under the collar for President Biden. Uh, I want to focus on that. But just before we do, in terms of this muddled conservative thinking and uh, where the policy will go, one, one other piece that seems to be out of vogue and a thing of the past, although Paul Ryan at the Reagan Library recently put it front and center, which is spending, mm-hmm. uh, that Republicans generally have been concerned about the debt, deficit spending. Um, and, and if you want smaller government, generally you'll have a government that spends less, although they're not necessarily have to go together. Um, where, where, how do you organize that past priority and, and see it being relevant in the future of the party? Well, it is true uh, that uh, Republicans tend to focus on debt and deficits when they are out of power. Um, that was the case when uh, Congressman Ryan released his his roadmap uh, to America's future and the path to prosperity. That was a, he did that. The first version came out in 08, um, just as uh, Republicans were going to be swamped by the Obama wave, uh, and then the second version came out the following year when the Republicans were a minority. Now the Republicans are back in the minority. They don't have power in Washington and uh, you're beginning to see them talk up debt and deficits again. Now, uh, I think for good reason, uh, because if Biden were to have his way- Six uh, trillion. <laughs> six trillion dollars yeah. in yeah. additional spending. Uh, and that's after all the debt that we accrued during the Trump years. Now, people, people don't feel constrained because for whatever reason, um, the bond markets, have been able to sustain this debt load. Um, and then here comes the big worry for the Democrats, and that is the return of inflation. Right. When I look at the Democrats today, I see them re- recreating the conditions that led to their demise in the late 1970s. You're seeing Carter-esque policies that, you know, inflation, stagnation, and inability to grow. Crime, okay, people forget. We've had it so good in America uh, in the last 30 years, uh, that we don't understand why the Republicans came to power in the first place, why Ronald Reagan came to power in the first place, or voters' main concerns in 1980, inflation, crime, 14%, right? Something huge. Yeah. Um, crime and then national humiliation. Yeah. It got to a point uh, after, uh, in the end of the 1970s, after the um, uh, end of the Vietnam War, after the Iranian Revolution, after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, that Americans just could not take it anymore. And they were tired of their country being a helpless giant, which um, is a Nixon phrase. Um, and, so, and so this all helped Ronald Reagan. Uh, you know, who said who said that Vietnam was an honorable cause? Um, so uh, I, I see that I see Biden doing the same thing. Um, but but you, before we go to Biden, I want to go back to the Republican side because I yeah. we got into this piece of the conversation sure. uh, in terms of how Republicans look at 
oh, spending. Yeah. And to me, you know, there's there's starting to be this churn. I don't know if it resides, you know, the same um, people like, you know, the common good capitalists or the Hollers or the Rubios who are less focused on it. But there seems to be some intellectual justification for deficits and debt because the old kind of ratios we thought, you know, were the guardrails on, 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 on fiscal discipline in terms of debt to GDP ratio perhaps now are less relevant, right? It's not about whether you can pay down your entire debt, it's whether you can actually service the debt, right? Um, you know, it's not, it's no longer just the US that holds the debt, right? We, we should take account for the fact that our treasuries are bought globally. So why should we limit it to a construct which is bound by the US GDP? I mean, there are these arguments out there, which perhaps, Matt, you could say, uh, make the conservative orthodoxy of uh, fiscal discipline uh, less relevant to you know the 21st century global economy. And I think that you know I, I think that's because people haven't felt any uh, constraints because of the debt. And, right. Um, you know the one one thing though I mean even on the service the if the debt service which is so so large and will grow higher, um, even if uh, interest rates stay where they are. Right. You know, that does have a crowding effect on not on discretionary spending, non entitlement. No doubt. Spending. We spend more servicing the debt than we do on national defense. Absolutely. And if you and you think about Biden's plans for the defense budget, I mean, eventually there are costs to all this spending. Um, and uh, it's our defense budget that, that gets hit first. Um, and so I think you would see some Republican resistance to that if they're not, you know, uh, kind of Rand Paul types who want the defense budget cut. Anyway, um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I actually think spending will be an issue in the 2022 midterms. Um, I think you're already seeing resistance. I mean, look look at the resistance to the uh, to the jobs plan, the infrastructure bill. You know, um, we'll see uh, whether these negotiations between uh, Shelley Moore Capital of West Virginia and, and Biden come to fruition. But if they do, it means that he's going to have to settle for less than what he wanted. Did Joe Biden know when he became president of the United States that the success or failure of his presidency, at least the first year or two of his presidency, would be determined by how the senators in West Virginia treat him? I mean, between Joe Manchin controlling what legislation gets 50 votes in the Senate and certainly whether you have a filibuster or the Republican Senator you know, Capito uh, uh, striking a deal with him on infrastructure, it seems like everything's riding on West Virginia for Joe Biden. It's <laughs> a great state. Um, Biden, I, I think, uh, you know, the way I view it is, uh, uh, Biden views this as his last swing at the bat, uh, last at bat. Uh, what do you it, mean? We're in June. He's only been president for, you know, less than 200 days. He's got exactly. his last swing. How that is sounds so. Well, I mean, he I views mean, his presidency that way. He okay. His, Explain. Well, uh, one, uh, he's the oldest president we've ever had. Two, it's unclear whether he's going to run for a second term. Um, three, the margins are so small for Democrats that Democrats fully expect them to lose uh, the Congress next year. Um, certainly the, the House. House. The House. Cer certainly the House. Maybe, maybe even the Senate. Um, but it only takes one Republican control of one chamber to really uh, thwart your agenda. So what that means to Biden and his team is he has two years. And he was bequeathed this gift, as I mentioned earlier in the program, he was bequeathed this gift by Donald Trump, 
of the two Senate seats in Georgia. So that gives him two years now to go for broke, to try to get as much as he can passed um, uh, so that he will go down in the, in the history books as um, you know, uh, the man who was able to fulfill things that Barack Obama was not. Uh, the problem is though, uh, as always, governing parties misread their electoral mandate as an ideological mandate. And there's just not the appetite for a lot of these programs uh, that are really favored by the- What are the best examples of the programs that they're, they're pushing that the people aren't buying? Well, I mean, just look at uh, what we've been uh, fighting about in Washington the week that we record this program, the, the For the People Act, this mm. huge election bill that would um, basically nullify all these laws in the states uh, that require safe voter ID um, and other kinds. This of, is this is the debate between what is voter you know, voting integrity and versus voting suppression. Voting suppression. Right. Um, the truth is, there's not. Uh, forget about needing 60 votes for this bill. There aren't 50 votes for this bill. Everyone's focusing on Senator Manchin, like you say, but there are several other Democratic senators who want to so Senator Sinema is one you've highlighted in Arizona. Senator, who else? Sin, well, Sinema. I don't think Maggie Hassan, who's up in a competitive race next year in New, New Hampshire, she, I don't think she's ready to vote for it in its current form. So, uh, it's just not there. If you look at other uh, bills like uh, the Equality Act, right, which would um, kind of rewrite, it would it would threaten, I think, religious liberty in the same way that, um, or religious uh, uh, freedom acts at the state level, uh, that the election reform would threaten the voter ID requirements at the state level. By the way, requirements that many blue states have, including the one where I live. Yeah, that's been the great story of all this. Yeah, and voter ID is actually a 70-30 issue for. New York and Connecticut, Maryland. Delaware. Yeah, Delaware. I mean, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so uh, there, there's no, I don't think that can clear 50 votes, uh, the Equality Act uh, either. Uh, and then you'd look at the American Jobs Plan or the Amer um, American Jobs Plan, which we're debating right now. Like I say, it's dicey. And if these negotiations with Capitol fail, then again, we're, Biden's back at square one where everything comes down to mansion. <laughs> and so um, I, I, think, I think that uh, Democrats seriously misjudge the appetite for the type of reforms that uh, get uh, the, you know, writers for the New York Times uh, all excited. Um, it's just not the case. Um, and so you're beginning to see actually just this week, Biden kind of back away from some of uh, his most ambitious. So the, the pivot to the center is, is, is what you might expect now, uh, just because of the well, electoral and realities. I, yeah, I hope because uh, I, I, think, I think one of the things that led to Donald Trump in 2016 was a sense among the American people that government just wasn't listening. They were not listening. Um, you know, um, uh, Scott Brown won that Senate seat in 2010 and the Democrats passed Obamacare anyway. The Republicans won full control of the Congress in 2014, and Obama expanded the DACA program anyway, despite saying uh, over a dozen times that he lacked the authority. And that just sent, I think, a message to the electorate that government didn't care. And when, when they had that message, then they were willing to embrace a figure who is ready to smash everything. 
So it, it'd be better for Biden, be better for the Democrats, be better for everyone if they, if they took a step back and said, okay, let's see what we can actually get through without inflaming the whole situation. Does this kind of political calculus, as you've outlined, lead that the Republicans to avoid supporting anything, uh, including our infrastructure bill, even if Senator Capito comes up with some uh, number, you know, pick, pick your how many billions, hundred billions, yeah. uh, that Senator McConnell will say, uh, no, thank you. We'll, we're we're going to just uh, take this to the midterms and not going to embrace anything between now and then. I mean, it's hard to say because uh, in, it, when people say infrastructure, uh, <laughs> everybody likes it, right? And if you could get the Biden administration to settle for an infrastructure bill that really just focuses on broadband, on highways, on bridges, and pays for almost all of it with uh, repurposed uh, COVID money uh, from all the relief bills we've passed in the last- That's the primary bill bill payer that Capitals put forward, right? Yeah, basically, yeah. And now Biden has another thing about like a corporate minimum rate that corporations would have to pay a minimum tax. It wouldn't be an increase in the tax rate, just be a minimum. If that actually happened, then I do think you could possibly see 60 votes in the Senate for it. Um, yeah. But, they, these, but these I don't know if it's going to happen is the thing, because it, what Biden wants to do, A, is raise corporate taxes, <laughs> and B, this infrastructure plan has, I think, about $400 million for home health care workers, which is a huge uh, benefit to, uh, to the SEIU, to the labor unions. And I don't think they would give up that easily so so i don't i don't rate the chances for compromise high but i do think it is in uh, many republicans interests to get an actual infrastructure bill just so they can say we actually got something done right that there that the one instance in their narrative their view that biden was willing to be you know truly bipartisan or move to the center there was a willing player but in every other respect he's, he's catering to his left flank that's the um, way i read it yeah all right well uh we got to shift to our lightning round. Okay. Uh, our favorite part with you, Matt, just because you are so knowledgeable about our 40th president and the ideas uh, he espoused and uh, the things he wrote. Um, last time you were on, you cited a commencement speech uh, that President Reagan gave at William Woods College in Fulton, Missouri. Famous Fulton, Missouri, not necessarily because of President Reagan's speech, but because of Churchill's speech. Uh, that was delivered in 1952. I'm hoping you got something just as good for us this week. What do you have to share? All right. Well, uh, for speeches, um, you know, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about Reagan's uh, speech to the British Parliament in, we- uh, in Westminster in uh, 1982. This is the great speech where he said that the Soviet Union was doomed to the ash heap of history. So he kind of turned the Marxian rules of historical progress on their head. Uh, and it said that Marxism was the one that was going to collapse under its own contradictions. Uh, and he was right. And he also talked about the- infrastructure- At a time where no one believed him. No one believed <laughs> right? It wasn't him. like it was- This was in the goal. middle, this was in the middle of the Euro missile debate, right. where Reagan wanted to go through with plans actually initiated by Carter to deploy the Pershing intermediate range nuclear missile in Europe, it led to the largest single protest in American history, over a million people in the streets of New York City in 1982. Um, so this is in the midst of the nuclear freeze debate. Reagan's considered a madman. 
and he says that the Soviet Union is going to collapse. It's doomed for the issue of history. And he also said that in order to make that happen, because uh, Reagan did not just believed that the arc of history was going to take care of everything. He believed we had to do things to, to um, achieve our goals. And one of the things he wanted to do in that speech to the British Parliament was create what he called the infrastructure of democracy. And it's a wonderful passage in the speech where he says that democracy is not just voting and it's not just majority rule, right? Democracy is a lot of things. It's freedom of the press, it's individual rights, it's having a civil society. It's all these things that are actually left out of our democracy debates today. Um, and so I think for that reason, we should revisit the speech. And also I think when we think about America's approach to the world, we need to revisit the speech as well. Um, so yeah, that'd be the speech I talk about, I've mentioned today. All right, and you got a quote you wanna share? Oh, a quote. Or a book. What do you got? Okay, well, here's the book. I don't know if I should recommend this book or not, but I will tell you that <laughs> I spent the final months of uh, 2020 uh, kind of hiding from politics when I could by going back into history. And so I read uh, the lefty historian Rick Perlstein's four-volume series on the rise of Reagan. This, these four books, they total probably uh, 3,500 pages. Um, and they cover 16 years, <laughs> they cover 1964 to 1980. And um, Reagan is a main character in uh, pretty much all of the books, a little bit less in the first book before the storm, which talks about another of my heroes, Barry Goldwater. Um, but uh, the most recent book is called Reaganland. It's 1200 pages. It focuses on uh, the years between 1976 and 1980, the real rise of Ronald Reagan. And um, despite uh, a lot of annoying passages. Uh, it is kind of a, a gripping read. It kind of takes you day by day, really. Uh, that's why it's so long. Um, it, back to the America of that time. And just to re reiterate something we were saying earlier, America at that time was really messed up. I mean, <laughs> really, really messed up. Not in a you're good saying, place. You're saying like in contrast to today? I, th I think we're getting there. <laughs> I don't think, I, I, I think we're really messed up today as well, but I don't think we're even, even we are approaching late seventies America, but, but we seem, but we seem determined to, to, to reach that <laughs> low. You were talking about those interest rates, you know, so I mean, we're exactly. No, it's, we seem like we are, you know, we are more than willing to repeat the mistakes of the past. So, so yeah. So if you're a true Reagan fan like me, then you'll, you'll sit through the, uh, the Reagan land book, despite all of the author's annoying habits. What, what, so, so, but give us a little more on, on, on the author. I mean, you know, was Pearlstein, um, you know, well, you know, the axe to grind. Um, here's the funny the thing. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that, Roger. Um, the funny thing about Pearlstein's treatment of Reagan, uh, despite him disagreeing with everything that Reagan believed, is that he comes, it, it seems to me anyway, uh, he comes away with a deep respect for Reagan's sheer uh, talent as a politician but also in his, his psychological capacities. Reagan's ability to always be contained um, and, and never, he was always, you know, Reagan was always performing the role of Ronald Reagan. And that gave him such power uh, to charm, uh, to command, to lead. And, and so, and Perlstein can't really dispute that fact. You know, and so he'll he'll talk about Reagan going across the country giving all these speeches, and he'll he 
he'll say, you know, every single speech that uh, people just um, were held uh, in rapt attention. He even actually another thing about the book, which I think is interesting. You know, one of the main uh, attacks on Reagan is his speech uh, in Philadelphia, Mississippi to the Neshoba County Fair in 1980. Uh, Philadelphia, Mississippi being the site of where civil rights workers had been killed. And Reagan's enemies always use this to say that he's somehow a crypto racist um, because he used the phrase states rights in this speech. Perlstein, again, someone who you'd think would be extremely opposed to Reagan, actually acquits him in this instance. Hmm. Says it was a real confusion. Reagan was actually supposed to address the Urban League, the African-American um, group, civic group, uh, but through a scheduling problem, ended up going to this county fair where Trent Lott told him, you need to use the phrase states' rights. And if you watch the <laughs> speech, as Perlstein did, and, it, and I went and watched it, Reagan was so uncomfortable using this phrase. Hmm. And the audience could tell. And so Perlstein acknowledges that it's one of Reagan's worst performances, clearly because he's uncomfortable. He departed and, and, from what he otherwise would have done. Absolutely. And Reagan, you know, Reagan took took race and civil rights uh, pretty seriously. He did not want to ever be construed as racist. And, um, and so that put him in a very awkward position in that moment where, and Perlstein actually credits him and says, now the truth is he this was not something, well, this was not we'll, some we'll, secret plan that to appeal to right. racists. We'll, we'll uh, highlight that in, in the notes um, and uh, motivate me now to take a look at that. At, yeah. Maybe at just that, that one page, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By the way, you should note that we're recording uh, this show on the anniversary of President Reagan's speech at Westminster. So it was 39 years ago today. So Matt, I don't know if you planned it that way or just- I didn't, I didn't. You are of that course, good. <laughs> we're, we're also around the time uh, of the famous uh, Point to Hawk speech. That was, that was a couple of days ago. So yeah. June is a great time for, for Reagan speeches, uh, President yeah. Reagan's speeches. Uh, Matt Connetti, thank you for being back on the show. We'll have to end it here, but no doubt we will uh, have you back on again. Uh, certainly when your book comes out, remind us the title, The Right, I believe. Yes, The Right, The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. Next break. Uh, Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. Can't wait for that, but we'll probably uh, come up with a reason to have you sooner if you want. Thanks, Roger. Thanks, Roger.